Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler. Amy is now a regular on the show. This is her third episode in a matter of three or so months. Uh, Amy is an old dear friend of mine. We went to graduate school together, and uh, she is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, as well as a pastor at a local church there uh, in the Wheaton area. So she has a lot to offer both as a preacher and as a scholar and student of the word, but especially this week, because this week we are discussing a passage from the book of Hebrews, which is her area of expertise. She's actually published two books uh, on Hebrews. Uh, if you if you just type Amy Peeler into Amazon, you'll find, uh, but one of them is called You Are My Son, an ex- exploration of the theme of sonship in the book of Hebrews, a, dis- a topic we do get into in the in the middle segment of this episode. And she also has, and that, that's a highly technical work. It's really great, but you know, might be a little tough for for some listeners, I suppose. Although it's really great. So, I, uh, but then also a, a little more accessible work uh, called Hebrews: An Introduction and Study Guide, uh, co-authored with uh, Patrick Gray. So that's a little bit more accessible uh, study guide for the Book of Hebrews. So I would recommend both of those books, but especially the latter uh, if you're new to he- the study of the Book of Hebrews. That's an excellent way in. So that just came out uh, not too long ago. So uh, yeah, so our text this week, as mentioned, is from Hebrews. It's chapter five, verses five through ten. Hebrews chapter five, verses five through ten. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show along to others so that they may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Amy. you be willing to read the passage and then I'll say a word of prayer? Certainly. Hebrews 5, 5 through 10. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word of the cross, this word of the life of Jesus, of his suffering unto death for us. And as we prepare this season, as we make our way with Christ toward Jerusalem, 
through Jerusalem and find ourselves with him crucified outside the city. We ask that your Holy Spirit that led him and guided him, that guided the thoughts and mouth and hands of the unnamed author of this letter, that that same spirit would be work in us and Amy and myself and all those listening in, that we might receive the word of the cross and uh, bear it faithfully and may it bear fruit in us and in those around us. We ask us in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, as I uh, mentioned in the introduction, uh, Amy is a Hebrews uh, scholar. This is her her sweet spot. So I'll ask you what I always ask, which is, hey, what are some observations you have? And But uh, whether they're new or old is up to you. But what, what are you noticing? What's catching your eye or ear today? Yes. As, as we read, it does strike me that this is one of those passages, and you know, maybe it's true of every passage, but when you spend a lot of time studying a, a particular corpus, you know all of the the tricks, right? You know all of what's going on behind the scenes. And it just strikes me even in reading, I was reading from the NRSV, just decisions being made. There's a lot of debate in this passage about exactly how the words should run. So this is a passage that I think demands a great deal of of study to know and to be able to decide, do I like the decisions that are being made in my translation? And at the end of the day, I think the overall message is quite clear. Jesus's intense experience, as, as you prayed, of the cross, but the path to get there, there's lots of choices, interpretive choices to be made. Um, it just was really apparent to me as, as I read the translation, he was heard because of his reverent submission. That's a little bit debated what's going on there. Uh, maybe we can turn to that in a moment, but I think that's a fun place to dive in. It also it struck start- me as well, the beginning of um, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience. And um, so I enjoy Hebrews as a whole, but that particular issue of what does it mean to be a child of God, a son of God, is really my main interest in Hebrews. And that phrase has so much weight to it. It really is a way of affirming both Jesus's participation with us as children of God, but also his differentiation that he's a different kind of son than the rest of us can be. The other thing I love, and this is old but it's still good. An oldie, but a goodie, my dad would say about music. Um, (laughs) uh, That he introduces this theme of high priesthood by going back to the theme of sonship. So recalling the citation of Psalm 2, that to me has for years captured me as a really interesting interpretive decision on the part of our author. So um, those are the the things that, as, as I read it out loud, the few things that popped immediately for me. That's great. That's three quick topics to start with. I think the the last one, you we can start with the last one. The the last one is probably the most important for the book as a whole, though we might not spend a ton of time on it. It's up to it's it's how we decide. But right. yeah, that's that opening line. That's the you know, it's part of that first quotation series of quotations in chapter one of Hebrews. Exactly. And the theme of sonship is where he camps then for the first, what, four chapters or so off and on with more or less emphasis. 
like the Moses servant son thing and the right. not ashamed to call us right. brothers stuff in chapter two. Mm-hmm. But what, of course, Hebrews is probably more well known for this priesthood stuff, but really the, the genius contribution of Hebrews is really the, the sewing together of these two concepts, right? right? I mean, right. which don't always, how those two fit, fit together, Jesus, son of God, Jesus as the high priest, mm-hmm. you can see Hebrews kind of probably receiving both of these themes are probably already yeah. in the Christian water, right? Would right. assume and what part of what his genius is, is uh, finding ways to sew them together <laughs> through the figure of Melchizedek. Is that fair or am I yes. reading too much into the possible, I'm speculating a little bit of the background, but. No, um, uh, I, I think you're probably right that these are themes that he is aware of. Uh, he makes the claim that he's basically a second generation or at least he yeah. did not experience Jesus directly. I think that is one of the most important insights we can get into the experience of this author in 2-3. He didn't hear directly from the Lord about salvation, but from those who had heard it from the Lord. So mm-hmm. he's a step removed. And that really does re- mean that he has been the beneficiary of the tradition. So that's absolutely the case with the theme of sonship. That is so prominent in Paul in the Gospels, which is which are really reflections of the Jesus tradition itself. So he he's taking that in. In the past, I might have said that the priesthood motif, he is more of an innovator. And I still would want to make the claim that in a way that is not paralleled by any other author, he develops the theme of Jesus being the high priest. I have been maybe um, taken back just a little bit in my boldness hmm. of that claim by the work of Nick Perrin, uh, his uh, what will be a trilogy on Jesus, the priest, Jesus and the temple. I've been impressed that actually there's theme of priesthood that was more apparent in the gospel tradition than I realized. And so I'm yeah. more open to the idea. Yeah, that so that by- <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, ha- I have, but I think, well, I think in a way you get to say Hebrews is still an innovation, mm-hmm. though it might not be an invention. So he's not invention right. inventing yes. this concept, right. but he's innovated by by walking us through how these are two sides of one coin. Yes, yes. because in the because I I I, I would agree with Perrin and others, and of course a, a more classical tradition sees priesthood all over the Gospels. Right. I think. Right. Modern Bible scholarship has rightly corrected from that because we've, mm-hmm. we're reading like an elaborate atonement theory into the Gospels that's not mm-hmm. there. So I feel like Bible scholarship is often very good with its correction okay. on overdone theology. Okay. Uh, but sometimes it overcorrects, right? Exactly. <laughs> and then exactly. you, you overcorrect and you're like, oh, there's no priesthood stuff there. I'm like, right. I don't know, man. It's already in Mark, baby, if you're paying attention. Yes, um, that's true. But there's no sort of conceptual or even narratival linking of sonship and priesthood. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of set side by side. They're Mm -hmm. not really put together. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, and so that to me is an innovation is bringing them together as opposed to just, Oh, these are just, you know, two interesting facts about Jesus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But really like what it means to be the son, the true son Mm -hmm. is to be uh, the high priest, but a special kind. Right. You know, right. And ah, here we have this biblical antecedent of Melchizedek, who is both a king, which means a yeah. son, but a weird kind of son with no parents, yes. you know, and then he's a king and a priest uh, yeah. in one. Exactly. Um, I think it's genius. I, I love, I, I mean, so that really, I mean, in a way, just the quoting of verse five and putting it next to verse six, these quotes yes. from Psalm two and Psalm 110. 
Right. Both of which also had prehistory. These mm. are favorite Psalms woven exactly. through the Gospels and Paul. That in many ways, like you could almost say that the whole innovative contribution of Hebrews is contained in the juxtaposition of the of yes. verse five and six, right? Absolutely. No, I love you. So no wonder you and I are talking about the whole book right at the beginning, because yes. in a way, the whole book is contained exactly. in the gene, you know, and in a classic rabbi way, like just the main idea is what two texts can we put next to each other that yes. we wouldn't have thought to put next to each other and what comes out of that? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If this is a stitching together, then this is the main thread <laughs> that like, Oh, I love that. That's five, great. Five through six is, is it. Uh, and I, th- I like to kind of ask the question of why did he do it this way? Could he have done it a different way? And mm. it seems to me Ooh. why it's very interesting that he does not quote from Psalm 1101 here, right? Because mm-hmm. he's already quoted from Psalm 1101, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I mean, this is kind of the culmination of his Katina in chapter one. This is the best known. And he's going on to cite verse four, which no other author of the New Testament does. So it would make a whole lot of sense to say, hey, you know, in this Psalm, God said, Christ is going to sit at his right hand. And he also talked about priesthood. But the fact that he goes outside of Psalm 110 to recover very explicitly the theme of sonship and fatherhood is is showing Uh. that he's threading these things together. Because if you just think kind of on a rational or logical level, Psalm 110 might work better. Hey, look, everybody knows that Jesus is at the right hand. I want to make the argument that he's also a Melchizedekian priest. But he goes outside of that to say, remember that conversation we had about sonship? Sonship. It's the same oh, person. genius. Yeah. And it's almost like by quoting, now this is taking a trick from our our teacher, uh, our, our mutual teacher, uh, Ross Wagner, uh-huh. that, that by quoting verse four, mm. in a way, well, verse one comes along with it. So it would be better yes. to then cite psalm 2 which brings uh-huh. most of psalm 2 with it you know exactly. uh although i also have been shaped deeply by don jewel who who sadly <laughs> died before you got to yeah. have him mm-hmm. um because because i was one year ahead of amy exactly. I mean, she's she's my she's my senior in biblical scholarship but i'm her senior in by one year <laughs> at Princeton. But don jewel emphasizes more the kind of free-floating these texts and kind of entering into the tradition and being handed on and of course psalm 110 is kind of is it the most frequently is Sontan, is it the most frequently cited? Uh, one of, or I it's mean, one of the highest. Absolutely. And definitely and uh, and almost by all the authors. So it's very interesting exactly. that you pointed out that verse 1 is cited by basically almost the entire New Testament. Yes. And verse 4 is cited by none of them. And that's exactly. a fascinating which yes. makes him a perfect kind of second generation Christian right. theologian because he's kind of like, well let me add my little piece in here. Let me exactly. read on and you'll see l- uh-huh. look at this cool thing. Yes. Yes. The connection that you guys haven't seen yet. Right. Right. I, wow. I, I think he, he is a good reader. Uh, he reads beyond. I often say to my students, he, here's a, here's a scholar who reads beyond the assignment. <laughs> uh, <'cause he's> really, <laughs> if the page numbers are set here, he's like, I'm going to read more. Uh, he does it. Well, with that's, that's funny. That's clever. Well. Um, because he the, the, the assignment Psalm 22. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the yeah. assignment that that's, that's handed on to him is, Hey, Psalm 1101, look at that. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Psalm 2, verse 7, look at that. You know, and he's like, well, let's read on a little. Let's read the whole psalm. And, uh-huh. and all of a sudden, look at this connection and then jumping and following Melchizedek through back to Genesis and everything. Exactly. Right. Right. 
So that, wow. and then if, if you think, and, and of course in Hebrew scholarship, this is an arena for conversation and even debate. How do you articulate the relationship between sonship and priesthood? And I think there's a lot of good literature. If, if your listeners are interested, many of the more recent commentators will, will talk about the different ways of putting those together. In my own work, I really do see sonship as the primary relationship that then affords Jesus's particular priesthood, its superiority. And so because of his mm. intimate relationship with God throughout eternity, that then means that when he is called into priesthood by his own father, that gives him proximity to God and eternal life. All of the things that differentiate his priesthood from others are really based in that familiar relationship that he has with God. That's how I would understand the relationship between the two. Others have scattered, you know, different ideas out there. But I think this grounding in Psalm 2 in this evidence is saying, hey, this is primary and priesthood comes out of it. Oh, that's cool to think about. Yeah, I, I can see the case. No, I'm not going to push it because we ain't got time for that. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think it's my view. I would probably, I would probably be inclined to what you just said there. But I could see the case the other way. I could see why someone would want to say, you know, he performs this priestly act and then he's kind of bestowed sonship, right? It, so it's somewhat linked to the the sort of temporal categories of chapter two, right? Which we got back into time. Did we get into time last time we talked? We did, yeah. <laughs> the funky yes. time, right? And if it, and and some people would like to read, uh, there's a, a, a strong modern tradition of reading chapter one and all those statements today I've begotten you as like kind of resurrection talk. Oh, right. 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 Which, you know, like, like in Romans one, right. Designated son of God at, yes, the you know, according to resurrection. Yeah. And, and it might be the case that that was Hebrew that I I'm open. The way I would split the baby is say that that's actually probably how these texts were taken prior to Hebrews. And, but he might be pushing them back in time the way that an author like John is doing. Right. I yeah, I often I see John John relates to the synoptics mm. as Hebrews does to Paul and mm. and that's an analogy so I'm not right. saying they're necessarily dependent on them. I'm open to right. it being independent traditions, I don't know. But to say that they're John is kind of complexifying and deepening mm-hmm. and sort of entering in a this is not scholarly talk but kind of <laughs> entering into a more mystical depth dimension mm-hmm. of the same story. Yeah, you can see the same pattern in Hebrews. There's a kind of depth dimension and a deeping of connections to things that are just kind of stated baldly in Paul mm. on his way to settle disputes and stuff like that. You know, he 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 ain't got time for like developing. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. I don't know. I don't know if that analogy registers for you or I not. It does, but. yeah. And and I think on this particular point, that's well said. I'm not opposed to the idea of seeing an emphasis on exaltation and a particular mm-hmm. stepping into the benefits of his sonship at that moment. But I think this author is able to hold intention. Yes, he takes his seat as son in right. a particular way after the cross and resurrection, but that doesn't mean that he always hasn't been son. A recent work that it's probably not even off the it's, press yet, but Bobby. It's James like going from heir, going from heir apparent to exactly. to being coronated. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and a new book that develops that is Bobby Jameson's work on sonship in Hebrews. Um, cool. That should be out soon from IVP. So, I think it's. Well, this was your second observation. I feel like sentence. Well, let's come back. Let's take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit about verse eight.
All right, we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with uh, Amy Peeler, and we are discussing Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. I wanted to try something new that I'm going to start doing more often, and that's to read the text again if it's not too long at the top of each segment to kind of get it fresh, and also a great way to slip in alternate translations. So. So let me, uh, I will, I do want to start with verse eight, but let me, let me just go ahead and read five through eight. Mm. Um, I'm going to read, this is going to be from, so Raymond Brown has his great two volume, the death of the Messiah that I recommend to all our listeners for, I I read portions of it every Lent. It's huge. I haven't finished the book. I just kind of pick up where I left off from the previous year and kind of slowly work through it. It's two volumes. It's massive. And it's a commentary, as you know, Amy, but our listeners might not. It's a commentary on all the Gospels synced up and also discusses other material. And it has a short little section on Hebrews 5 as it relates to the Gethsemane narrative, because it's often linked to that in the commentary. So this is just his translation real quick. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who, in the days of his flesh, having brought prayers and supplications with a strong clamor and tears to the one having the power to save him from death, and having been heard from fear, despite his being son, learned obedience from the things that he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the cause of eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. Well, I want to start with eight, but if there were any other strange choices there you want to discuss, we can. But verse eight, you're, I think you read from what, NRSV? Yeah. Uh, and they so have, it said, although being son. Right. Although he was son. And what did Brown he, have? He said, despite, so even mm-hmm. stronger, emphasizing mm-hmm. the contrast. Mm-hmm. So it's Kai Pair. Are, is, are, is that fair? Although, despite, I don't yeah. know the word. So Yeah. Even okay. though, yeah, that's just one of those kind of transition words that can do a lot. So, of- oh, it's a transition. So since it's a conjunction, it might not be as contrasty as, but. What I want to know is, to me, your thesis that sonship is basic to Christ's mm-hmm. identity, mm-hmm. right? I, yeah. If I heard you right. That's right? correct. Mm-hmm. If, if, verse 8 would be a piece of evidence strongly in favor of that, correct? Because right. the, the grammar, if unless that word kaiper is, is more ambiguous, at least according to the two translations we've heard so far today, a contrast is being stated. Yes. You know? You wouldn't expect a son. You might expect a servant, I assume, is the game that he's playing to, to think back to verse. Is it chapter two or chapter three where he talks about three, Moses one, and servant? Three, one and, through six. Yeah, yeah, three. So it makes me think of back to there. Obviously, a servant needs to learn to obey like Moses did, who, hmm. you know, lived this posh existence, but then had to learn obedience hmm. and suffer through suffering. It's almost a perfect. I don't know if that's in his mind or not, but you can you could see. Not yet being a son, Moses had to learn <laughs> obedience from suffering. But in the case of Jesus, he is a son. Yeah. And that I just don't feel like that would work very well if it's just by way of foreknowledge. Even though he's going to be rewarded with sonship on account of his priesthood, 
right. we nevertheless learned obedience. The, I don't feel like the grammar works That's unless right. am I am I importing too much no. into that no, conjunction? No, you're right. Because I mean, <laughs> he's very he's very clearly located us in the time of his flesh, and so yeah. this is the moment that this struggle oh, right. is playing out, and so. Uh, Though this is interesting, John, I hadn't thought about it in that way, a contrast between servanthood and sonship. That certainly is a theme that's in the, the past. So he might be evoking that where I have moved. Let me, let me give you how I have thought about Please, it. And let's tell, see yeah. if we can make these make sense. But um, that second statement, he learned obedience through what he has suffered. You'll know, and many of your readers will be familiar or listeners will be familiar. A mothin, a pothin. This was a, a yeah, saying world if, and, and it comes to us as well. If you want to learn, you're going to have to suffer. No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. Right. Yeah. I mean, and even there's kind of like a rhyming, uh, emethen, epithen. Nice. That is such a common theme in educational literature that even this author will appeal to in the next section where he talks about your uh, facilities being trained. And then of course that's intensely developed in chapter 12, where he talks about because the readers are sons of God, they're going to go through training. And so to be a son is actually to go through difficulty. So what's that's what I was, that's what I was thinking would be the problem with this as a proof text. And why I wondered if I am, if the translations are overdoing the conjunction here, because sons learn through, through suffering. suffering. That's explicit yeah. in chapter 13 or 12, is it? 12, exactly. Um, right, right. And in fact, and there, uh, if you are illegitimate, if you are not illicit child, a child from illicit marriage, the, the parent doesn't care. The parent doesn't discipline you. But if you're legitimate, then you receive this intense training. Such a guess you might word. punish a servant just in order to inflict terror on your, uh, right. <laughs> To, but that's just to get them you know, to, to put be them obedient, in line. That's, to, it, it, to comply. Exactly. That's not training their character. So what's, ah, okay. I remember when I was writing my own dissertation, I, I spent some time really wrestling over 8A because I was, I was wanting it to say, look, because he's a son. At first glance, it's like this perfect. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because I was, I, and I think this is correct in the letter. I do think the author says to the audience, Look to Jesus as your example. He experienced sonship. You are going to experience being a child of God. But, um, and this goes back to some of my earlier comments in the first segment, this contrastive, even though, despite, although he was a son, and you'll notice here that there's no article. And so many interpreters will point to, this is not just, this is talking about the kind of his sonship the nature of his sonship, ah. its quality. So even though he is a son, in the manner that we talked about in chapter one, that ah. kind of son who is so connected to God that he has been with God for eternity, participated in creation, reigns over creation, even though he's that kind of son, he still had to learn obedience through suffering. Ah. So it's more so, particular because because the audience of that time would think, yeah, of course a son has to learn exactly, obedience exactly. through suffering. Yeah. So he which he ends up agreeing with by the end of the book. Precisely. Well, of course, yes, right? But this actually should surprise us if we really understand yeah. who Jesus is. Yeah. And perhaps he's even dealing with an audience who may have I don't know what you think of this. I don't want to speculate too much, but he may be dealing with an audience who has such an exalted view of Jesus that they would think that he 
it was it, the days of his flesh were easy. I only say that because he goes out of his way to say that he was tempted yes. in every way. Yes. That, in that verse four. Now, yeah. I mean, constructing the other side of the telephone right. is next to impossible, but right. Right. Um, but he certainly at the very least, different. at the very least that whether that's his intent at the very least, it would correct that mistake. Exactly. Um, I mean, this yeah. is a fate. I mean, verse eight's a favorite proof text for, you know, people who want to remind us that, by the way, it's orthodox to say that Jesus was fully human and that he learned stuff <laughs> and that he had a hard time. I mean, exactly. Hebrews is chocked full of these kinds of the the humiliation of the son, while it's also chocked full of exaltation. It's both. Right. Exactly. Yes. 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 Um, okay. No. So, so, so now I'm thinking, so that's how, I do think that's, a very big piece of what's going on here to what degree he might be drawing upon the son servant contrast here. I would need to think a little bit more about, but I think it is more focused on what kind of son is he? And the surprise no, I dig that. of, of what, t- what he took away my little idea on the off chance that I could actually potentially contribute to Amy's reading of Hebrews. That would be just like, that would make oh, my ear. You um, totally so- <laughs> and have absolutely. Uh, but yeah, but, but that servant yeah. son contrast, that's the mistake of the, those trained as I have been. I mean, that's so big, you know, it's, it's in Paul, it's in John right. chapter eight. Yes. So I want to be careful that I'm not seeing a, a larger pattern mm. uh, and importing it into this verse. So, right, right. so the fact that the fact that it's made, it's explicitly made in Hebrews three would be the, the textual basis for right. exploring it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I'd be on pretty thin ground if it was just, if, if that, if chapter three, one through five ish wasn't there, but right. But that it's at least there. plausible. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, but you're the expert on sonship in Hebrews. I mean, that's like, I don't literally know wrote the book on right, it and not as a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have to go here if you don't want. I mean, we literally just set our agenda from your opening observations, which is great. Mm. Um, you want to talk about from fear? <laughs> yes, yes. You mentioned Brown, it, didn't you? The there was really interesting. Um, and, so and he so has a whole appendix just on that phrase. Oh, that's that. As Brown would. Yes. He lays out like eight options. Yeah. You want to hear them? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, that has, would be great. He has to seven them. options. Oh, my. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, behind, uh, behind the scenes for our, for our listeners, Amy and I had to rearrange our schedule a little bit and- so I, I was I was like ready to go, waiting for her, which is seldom the case. Usually my guests get online before me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I might as well get some books out. So I, so I was like, doesn't Brown talk about this? So, so Amy, thank you for being a few minutes late because I was more prepared for our conversation <laughs> than usual. <laughs> so he just has a little a little. He I'll just list them. I won't read everything. His comments on them, right? But he lays one, two, three, four, five, six ways of taking. It's apotes ulabeas, mm-hmm. which in the NRSV was says because of reverential fear, I think. Yeah. And Brown just cheated and said from fear. So you don't know oh. which way to take it. Okay. That was, it. that was what he had. So here we go. Having been heard because of his quote reverential fear, mm-hmm. having been heard and delivered from anxious fear, right? So the. To save, I mean, some of these things are in parentheses, but just Uh take it all for the gist, right? Number three, to save him from or out of death and having been heard 
from anxious fear. So being saved from death and from fear in the bad sense. Mm. Option four, having been heard, period. Apart from his reverential fear, and despite his being son, he learned mm. obedience. So link it to the next clause. Okay. Option five, um, death, period. You know, so save him from death, period. Having been heard, comma, away from anxious fear, despite his being son, away from the things that he suffered, he learned. Huh. So or away or apart from, right? So apart from fear and apart from the things he suffered, he learned. So despite being son, positive, despite fear. Mm-hmm. And that one's weird. And then last was just not having been heard. And then that's the possibility that there's a textual, cause there's a textual possibility, you know, maybe this right. is, 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 it doesn't belong there. Anyway, he says in my judgment, except for the last suggestion, which is an emendation, always of a desperate resort. The basic thrust of the whole is not crucially changed, whether from fear emphasizes the anxiety of the sufferings of Jesus or understood as reverence colors, his status as son. So he, he says, not much hangs on this. Uh-huh. I think that's why it's an appendix and not in the main text. Right, right. But I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd just lay out some of the options. Uh, yeah. How do you tend to take this? Is this fear in a more reverential sense, or fear in more of a afraid, anxious mm-hmm. fear? And how is that linked to the preceding phrase? So yeah. thanks for letting me list the options. Amy, no, that's, go. That's helpful. Tell us what and you again, think and why. Kind of- <laughs> That, that underlines what I was saying at the beginning, you know, decisions are being made here. And so yep. I think it is on the burden of the preacher, maybe not to have even one word about this in a sermon, but to know what decisions have been made. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the work we're called to do. And honestly, if you're not, you know, if you don't have a bunch of books with you, just literally comparing translations on exactly. your, on your Bible app, exactly. on your phone, you yes. can infer the range of options, Precisely. right? Precisely. I've done it with teenagers. They can say, oh, Okay. Looks like this word could mean about six different things. Exactly. Okay. Now in context, which one seems the fit? I mean, because that's literally what we're going to do. It's yes, <laughs> precisely. Um, so I think the most interesting thing, I'm going to start with that option that he rejects, which I would reject as well. I think it was Harnack, Von Harnack, who had suggested, and interestingly, yep. I have that's the cites, of the yeah. NA28. Uh, in the NA27, Nestle Elan 27, they would still include this emendation, but now it's it's gone. Uh, so they've decided that's a bad idea. They've taken it out. Uh, but he said, look, Jesus was not rescued from death. He had to go through death. And so this text doesn't make sense. Uh, he was not saved out of death. Of course, uh, the Orthodox tradition would say, no, that, that's correct. He wasn't saved out of death. He was saved through death. And so mm-hmm. there is, he was taken out of this situation, but not before he had to go through with it. So I think maybe that's the most important thing. And then what to do with this phrase. So he was, I guess the question there is, did God hear him? Yes, God heard him. Did God rescue mm-hmm. him before he had to die? No, God rescued him after yes. he died. And so there is a, a subtle but really important affirmation of the resurrection here, uh, even though it's not stated kind of as baldly as 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 it, we might see in Paul. This would be so a then, classic case, a classic case of where Paul and Hebrews have a different way of speaking, because Paul would never say saved out of death. He would say saved out of the dead. He, what? you know, he would use the phrase the dead as the place, you know, the place of the dead or from being yes. with the dead. Yeah. But it, yeah. It, this term could have the same meaning very easily. Um, right. Right. You know, um, yeah. From death. You've been saved from death, from hell, right. from the place of the dead. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. All the same thing. 
Yeah. And, and God heard him to, to do that. And yeah. so then you ask the question, what was Jesus's attitude? It, it hmm. strikes me as a similar issue to the passages, especially in Romans three, where people wrestle over the phrase pistis Christu. Is it the faithfulness hmm. of Jesus or the faith, faith in Jesus? Um, I, in that example, if you say it's faith in Jesus, then that phrase ends up being a little bit repetitive because Paul has already talked about having faith in Jesus. It strikes me here that he's already talked about Jesus's anxiety, if we want to use that phrase, that this this great cries and tears. uh, This is a heavy moment. And again, many have seen association with Gethsemane. Some will say these are the cries from the cross itself. Mm-hmm. But we get that anxiety already. So I think I have tended to avoid repetition and say that the phrase here makes good sense as he was heard because of his reverence. But I think that's a really actually a beautiful affirmation of human emotion. Reverence and trust in God. That's the end of the day, that's what's most important. Did Jesus trust in God, the one who is able to save him from death? He prayed and cried out because he knows God could save him from death. That trust can be expressed. That reverence can be in- expressed, not in a stoicism of, oh, I've got it all together. I don't I don't have to cry out. No, trust can actually be expressed in Elo Elamasabakhani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh-huh. That's actually you can express a reverence in cries of desperation. So there might be, well, I I don't know. Sorry. Mm. I think I'm drawing from my own work. One of the first pieces that I wrote and did publicly on Hebrews was Hebrews study of Jesus's emotions. Uh, And, and there really is in the affirm. Do you remember (laughs) that? And Matt Novenson responded to me. And that's the first thing Matt ever published. That's some of our earliest publications Uh, uh, unite us in that endeavor. Um, but but I really do believe there is in the fullness of celebrating Jesus's humanity. There's also a statement in line with the Psalms, truly, of human emotion, the gamut of human emotion. God welcomes, and that can be reverential. And in in a society in which I'm, I'm reading some other texts, reading a lot about Stoicism right now, and just reminded the guardedness of emotion was a high value, even when mm. your child died, if you kind of didn't show too much emotion, you were praised for that. There's a realness to Jesus's suffering here that is an example of his reverence, I think. So maybe I'm trying to have yeah. my cake and eat it too. But I think I well, do the think passage the as a whole, the with- phrases to, to kind of get different pieces at, on the table at the same time. No, that's good. I mean, with, with, la- with strong cries and tears, yeah. I mean, it's already the emotion is so ready, clearly there. And so, you know, having been heard, yeah, on account of his fear, I mean, on account of his reverence, on account of his, his uh, fear of the Lord to use the, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and uh, explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler. And we just have a few minutes left. She's got to go. but uh, And so do I, right? We all got to go. Uh, <laughs> what, what, if you were going to be preaching on this text, maybe you are. Maybe you're up on uh, 
I think this is week four or five of Lent. Uh, where would you uh, go with this text? Uh, how would you want to develop it uh, in a sermon direction? Yeah. Well, I, I I had a sense that our previous conversation felt really rich um, in a time of Lent. And wow, in some ways, right, COVID started during Lent last year. Felt In some ways, it's felt like we've just yep. been Lent for a really long time. <laughs> lots of Lent. Yeah, year-long lots Lent. Of- Suffering, lots of death, lots of loneliness, um, fear. So I might jump into what does it look like to express one's emotions before God? You know, you just said the phrase uh, godly fear. It's really striking to me how many students choose in my courses to investigate that subject, that they truly are confused by passages that talk about perfect love casts out all fear, but yet the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, I mean, that's kind of some basic word study issue, but it happens over and over again. And I I imagine that many listening to us preach might have some of those same questions. What does it mean to have reverence, to fear God? What does it mean to live in this world when things seem very fearful? I might jump in with a robust affirmation that God can handle emotion. Uh, interestingly, I was just talking with a family member this week who has some has a, a, a friend who's dying and said, I got mad at God and told God I was mad. And I know I shouldn't do that. And I apologized and definitely embarrassed for that. And I said, you know, God, God can handle that. <laughs> God can handle your emotion. Uh, I think people might need that license. And uh, this might be a really excellent time to point to the example of Jesus himself, who was um, comfortable and willing to express his emotion to his father. That's something that just, I really felt like that was a rich conversation. No, I think that's, so I think that's there. really powerful. And, and you could go through some key moments here uh, in terms of, you know, the days of his flesh and the opening mm-hmm. of it. And then the loud cry, you know, the strong cries. Um, it's even a nice little side note to say, I mean, this word here usually often translated what uh loud crying, but what's interesting is, I mean, it's, 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 it's Guras, So it, yeah. yeah, strong. And I think, it, I mean, I hate to play on these gendered stereotypes, but mm-hmm. it still has to be addressed. A lot of people yeah. think to, to cry out and to cry right. is, is weak. Yes. And, yes. and to right. be able to say, to see the strength in it, I think Absolutely. has yeah. some, has some value Absolutely. as it being linked to sonship. Mm-hmm. And ultimately to obedience, and I think some people might worry. Some some who are tempted by the sort of stoic, stiff yeah. upper lip approach to religion, as at least when I first met you, you yourself uh, would have would contest was your <laughs> temptation uh, yeah. Yeah. to be able to have this language of learning obedience through suffering. Mm-hmm. And some of us can worry that if I'm stressed out and burdened, as I'm obeying that my obedience is, is inferior in some way, yes. you know, like it's the whole, it's the whole, no, I don't just want you to do the dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes. And it's like, well, God, in some ways, yeah, he wants us to want to please him, but he knows that's not where we start. Yeah, We yeah. always start out. It's a struggle yeah. uh, at first and for a long time and to expect obedience to be easily acquired. And actually, interestingly, even learning obedience is an interesting phrase as if mm-hmm. to say, it's not like you're obeying and you suffer because you obey. It's like actually just the suffering and enduring through it. Right. Actually, you're learning how to obey, right? You're like obedience itself is something that must be learned. 
yes. rather than just, uh, oh, well, I did it. You know, it's, it, it's, it really is a way of life. Yeah. And that, that reminds me too, that might be an opportunity to prepare people to reflect on the cross for Holy Week. Uh, just a reminder mm. that Jesus, that was not a play. For Jesus, that was not a drama that he was not, mm. you know, this is what the Gnostics, this is the heresy of the early, that, oh, he wasn't really dying. He wasn't really suffering. He was just laughing through it all. That the cross, while he did so willingly, and this was his plan, uh, you know, the the triune God made this plan. Uh, it was not easy to carry through. And mm. for me, that adds to the gravity of what he did on my behalf. That he really did. I mean, and again, it's beautiful to pair this with Gethsemane. There was a struggle there, but he did learn obedience uh, and then became the cause of eternal salvation. I mean, that is a very hopeful note at the end of nine. What he secured is secured forever. Uh, maybe that is actually the ground upon which that we can really be comfortable to present our say, whole ugly selves before God, because we're not earning anything. It's already been earned. It's already been done. Yeah, I think it'd be a nice play with the, when you talk about the suffering of Christ to always mention both. I think this would be good and remember in preaching and teaching mm-hmm. to recognize both the solidarity of mm-hmm. his Mm-hmm. Uh, suffering so that he suffers with us and we suffer like him and with him, but then also the uniqueness of it so that we say, you know, <laughs> thank God we don't all have to suffer for the sins of the world, right? We just, <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook either. So to kind of catch both sides yeah, um, yeah. and preaching tends to fall in one or the other. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you're suffering. Oh, God's with you in that, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, could he also save me from it? That would be nice. Exactly. Uh, you know, yeah, like, or preaching that leans the other direction. That's mm-hmm. all about, oh, suffering is all just, a, you know, that's demonic and the enemy. And mm-hmm. if you're still stuck in the suffering, then you don't have enough faith in God. Right. Right. So this passage really draws a, a picture that eliminates either of those one-sided pictures. Exactly. exactly. That neither valorizes the suffering nor sets it aside as merely a, you know, a passing feature. Right. Right. Oh, that's well said. Yeah. Leaving space for both lament and the affirmation of Christ's victory. Uh, and that, yeah, that takes a yeah. lot of wisdom to have those held, hold those intention, but this passage does it. And so following the lead of the passage makes that possible. The one other idea that that comes to mind is that people might want to dig into the Psalms, uh, you know, being trained by Ross, Old Testament and the New. There is unending wealth in saying, OK, I'm going to spend some time in Psalm 2. I'm going to spend some time in Psalm 110. Uh, I might have my congregation say those responsively before the sermon and and see what uh, connections come up from that. So there's a lot of. um a lot that could be done here. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I can just mention a few Psalms and then, uh, then we can wrap up here. I mean, Psalm, I actually just Psalm 116 has a lot of resonance with this passage and even some of the same terminology in the Septuagint in the Greek version. So that would be an an additional Psalm to consult, uh, that could be really good. Uh, yeah. So I thought I'd just, just mention that in passing. Um, but obviously Psalm 22 and 39 and 31, all the greats, uh, no, this would be a good, a good time to make some space. This would be a really good week. All weeks are good for this really good week to really integrate 
uh, teaching and worship and participation, even if you're doing this remotely, actually more so if you're doing it remotely, participation can happen on accident when the body is just in the room. Mm -hmm. Participation needs to be, I think, thought through in advance when done remotely so that you can give instructions. Okay, here's the thing we're going to do right now. And you know, we're going to have some Psalms on the screen and here's some music and, uh, you know, recite these uh, on your own or with the partner who's there in the room with you. So I think really entering into the experience of this text is as important as expositing mm-hmm. its concepts and such. Mm-hmm. Well, I've kept you too long. I know you need to go. So let me just let you, I'll say goodbye to you and then you can log off and then I'll say goodbye to our listeners. Does that sound good? Thank you so much. Blessings on, on you today and your work and your listeners. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy. Bye bye. Yeah, so that was Amy. So glad to have her with us. Uh, thanks to you all, our listeners. Uh, we appreciate you so much uh, chiming in or listening in uh, week in, week out, and chiming in in various ways that you can. The best way to chime in if you want to start uh, offering uh, uh, comments or suggestions or, or interested in new content would be to um, sign up as a Patreon. Uh, and even if you don't sign up right away, uh, there's still even some initial content there because we're just getting started our uh, Patreon page. I got a day job. I don't see a penny of this. This is just to help uh, the team behind the scenes uh, to for their time and uh, resources uh, to get this show up. So yeah, patreon.com slash fresh text. Uh, check that out and see some of the ways that you can support the show financially and see some extra content that uh, can come your way that way. So uh, yeah, thanks so much uh, again, as always, to Todd and Eric for their production work. I can't imagine doing this show without them. Thanks to Tom uh, for his uh, donating the theme music. And uh, thanks uh, for sharing the show and getting the word out, you listeners. And uh, yeah, big thanks to Amy. I love talking with her. I'm glad she was uh, able to make time to do that today. Hope to have her on again. Been having her on a lot lately because uh, we have a blast together talking about the scriptures. Well, with all that said, big thank yous. Uh, I'll say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.